All right, well, once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 1? If you're new with us, last week we did begin a new book, the book of 1 Samuel. Let me review a little bit to kind of get people up to speed. Um, the background of the book of 1 Samuel is that it opens up during the period of the judges. Now, the period of the judges was the time before the monarchy was established, where the nation of Israel was still under a theocratic form of government. In other words, God was their king and ruled directly over the people. That changed when the people demanded a king and God had Samuel anoint Saul the first king. At that point, the nation went from a theocracy to a monarchy, and we'll see that as we get farther along in the book. But as we've already said, the period of the judges was one of the blackest in Israel's history, characterized by lawlessness, violence, social chaos, a period summed up by the phrase that appears five or six times in the book. There was no king in Israel, so every man did whatever seemed right in their own eyes, a real recipe for disaster. Uh, all you do is read the book of Judges to see how black a period in their history really was. But even though the book of 1 Samuel starts out during the period of the Judges, as the book opens up, we are introduced right away to a woman named Hannah. Now, the name Hannah means grace. And as we said last week, it seems that even in the blackest periods of human degeneration, that God's grace is still present. In fact, it was out of Hannah's pain and then her corresponding prayer that God birthed a new chapter in the nation's history by giving her a son who would go on to be a prophet, a priest, a judge, and who would lay the foundation for a spiritual revival in the nation. Now, I've outlined the first part of the book, the part that deals with Hannah, this way. First of all, Hannah's suffering, verses 1 to 7 of chapter 1. Then Hannah's supplication, verses 8 to 18 of chapter 1. Then Hannah's son, verses 19 to 28, also of chapter 1. And finally, Hannah's song, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Now, we looked at Hannah's suffering last week. Let's review quickly. Starting in verse 1, we read, Now, there was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim in the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah. Verse 2, he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Verse 4, and whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable, because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore she, Hannah, wept and did not eat. Now, once again, our hearts can't help but go out to Hannah. You know, when Elkanah, and, and Hannah appears first in the narrative because it seems that she was Elkanah's first wife, the woman he really loved. But because she was barren, he married a second wife, Penina, and Penina did give him many children. That made Hannah feel twice as bad because she knew the fault was her own. It wasn't, Elkanah was fine, he was able to have kids with Penina. So she was the one, Hannah was the one who was infertile. Not only that, though, we are told the Lord purposely kept Hannah from conceiving a child. Why? Well, as we pointed out last week, there's only two reasons I can think of for why God would have done something like this. Number one, as a judgment for sin, 
Number two, for a special purpose he had in mind. And with Hannah, I think both were the case. I think that part of the reason God continued to keep Hannah from conceiving was because wanting a child, listen, had become an idol to her, an idol. And even though the Bible tells us that children are a blessing from the Lord in Psalm 127, verse 3, and therefore wanting children is, of course, not a sin, is a good thing. Yet even though God sees children as a blessing, listen, anyone or anything that becomes a consuming passion in our hearts other than God himself, well, that becomes idolatry. God will not facilitate idolatry by giving us what we want, even if he wants to do it, like giving children is a good thing. Uh, as long as that thing becomes an idol, God's not going to bless idolatry. I also think that pride was a factor in Hannah's desire to have a child, and she wanted to prove her worth as a woman. In that culture, to be barren was a great tragedy. Uh, they looked upon barren women at very least as defective, so they weren't whole women, uh, but also they saw it as a curse from God. So uh, in that regard, society looked down on Hannah. And let's be honest, a big part of her reason to want children was to shut Penina up too, okay? So we, we understand that as well, all right? And so I believe all these things, as I said last week, all these things, and we're still reviewing a little bit, played a role in why God didn't allow Hannah to get pregnant. They played a role, guys, but they weren't the main reason. They weren't the main reason. You see, God needed a man to lead the nation out of this period of national decline into spiritual revival. And at that time, he found no man in Israel that he could use, no man that had a heart fully given over to him. And because God couldn't find a man already alive, he decided to grow one up from scratch, basically, all right? Starting with a baby who would grow up in the tabernacle, the house of God at this time. One that would serve God from the time he was first able to walk and talk, an instrument that God would prepare from childhood to adulthood that would then bring the nation into revival. But before God could raise up a child, he first had to have a woman who would be willing to surrender her child to God to be used by him all the days of his life. Hannah became that woman. And so out of Hannah's suffering eventually came great blessing for the nation. But here, let's just keep it at Hannah for right now, okay? That's Hannah's suffering. That lays the groundwork for everything else. Next, it brings us to Hannah's supplication, verses 8 to 18. Hannah's suffering led to Hannah's supplication. And we see that the supplication, first of all, takes the form of Hannah prays out of a broken heart. Hannah prays out of a broken heart. The first part of the supplication that she offered to God, verse 8, Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord, and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Look, Elkanah knows what the problem is. He just can't solve it. Only God could. And the same is true for us guys. Sometimes a Christian will find themselves in a place where their life seems maybe unhappy, unfulfilled, empty. They look around to see others. You know, that's what we do, don't we? I mean, we're not doing so well, so we look around to see who's doing best, so I can feel sorry for myself, okay? Look around, all right? See others who are surrounded by happiness, okay? Uh, their lives seem really together, where they're being blessed all over the place. Things seem to be going great for them. And that makes, let's be honest, that makes some feel envious and even resentful. And the first person we tend to take it out on and to blame for our unhappiness 
is our spouse. Either we blame them for making us unhappy, or we blame them for not making us happy. But either way, we take our feelings of emotional unfulfillment out on them. Now, many years earlier, Rachel, the wife of Jacob, did this very thing. When she couldn't conceive a child, she was frustrated, she was angry, and she took it out on him. Let me read to you from Genesis 30, verses 1 and 2. Now, when Rachel saw that that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister, Leah, who was very fertile, and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel. And he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? You see, Jacob felt the frustration of living with a woman who made him responsible, listen, for making her happy. He rightly told his wife that she was holding him responsible for doing what only God could do, in her case, to give her a child. But for the rest of us in general, to satisfy the emptiness and unhappiness in our soul. No spouse can fill the void in your heart. No spouse can make you happy on the inside. Only the Lord can do that. It's not fair when you make your spouse responsible for making you happy. It's not fair to them, and it's certainly not going to do you any good. It's only going to add to your frustration because this person cannot reach into your soul and make you happy, fulfill the, the parts of inside of you that are empty. Can't happen. We read how Hannah eventually left her husband's presence, went to the tabernacle, and there she sought the Lord. Verse 10, she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Look, I don't know what you're going through today in the way of painful circumstances or the extent of the emptiness and unhappiness you might be feeling at this moment inside yourself. I don't know what you're going through, but I know one thing for sure. The only one that can soothe your pain, fill your emptiness, and bring joy to your soul is the Lord himself. No spouse, no person, no thing on this earth can do that. Only the Lord can do that. Hannah's barrenness brought her to such a place, listen, of brokenness and despair that she ran into God's presence and poured her heart out to the Lord in prayer. And guys, let me tell you something. There is something about coming to that kind of desperation in your life, a place where you're that broken, where you're that, from the depths of your soul, you cry out. I don't even think Hannah was able, to, well, it says she wasn't even verbalizing her prayer. I think she was weeping from a place that was so deep that words couldn't even capture it. She, she just heaved sobs of, of despair and grief over her condition. There's something about coming to a place like that in your life where now you really capture the ear of God. Didn't David say this in Psalm 51? He basically talked about, look, God, you don't really desire sacrifices and burnt offerings. If you did, I'd, I'd bring them to you. What you really delight in is a broken and contrite spirit. Those things you won't despise. If I come to you with a broken, and David was repenting for his sin with Bathsheba. I mean, Hannah had not committed any sin. But David recognized, Lord, I, I'm not going to try to bring you animal sacrifices to cover my sin. What, I need, what you want me to do is come to you with a broken heart over what I've done, to confess it with a broken and contrite spirit. This is what you really want. You'll never turn away your ears from listening to a prayer like that. God is open to the cries of the broken. He, he's attentive to their prayers. And don't forget, as we couple that with what James said, 
that the effective, fervent prayers of the righteous accomplish great things. There's something about pouring your... It, it's one thing to, to pray. God listens to all kinds of prayers. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there are prayers we pray in a casual way that God listens to. But there's something, there is something in the Old Testament, put it this way. When a person was really going through a deep, deep period of, of grief, they would often come into the temple area and they would grab the horn to the altar and they would weep and cry out to God. It spoke of passion, fervency, brokenness. And they understood that God was attentive to prayers, to the prayers of the broken. So Hannah prays out of a broken heart, number one. Number two, Hannah surrenders the desire of her heart to God. Verse 11. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. And guys, this I believe is what the Lord was waiting for in Hannah's life. I really do. He was waiting for her to be broken, broken of wanting a child to fulfill her need to surrender that child to God to be used for his glory. We've entered into a new year, and I think that all of us want to go deeper for the Lord. We want this year to be a year where we get to know him even more than we have up to this point. And if we were honest, there's more than a few in this room who feel barren. You feel spiritually the way Hannah felt physically. She was barren. She was moved to despair. And you know what? You felt barren in your walk with God for a long time now. You've prayed. You've prayed. Nothing has happened, though. Let me say this to you. I believe that we as the people of God are going to keep on experiencing barrenness in our soul, even if we pray and pray and pray as Hannah did. Listen, it was only when Hannah was broken of self and willing to surrender to God what mattered most to her that God finally answered her prayer. And the same is true with us. Again, there's a lot of God's people who are feeling right now unsatisfied and empty. They sense deep in their hearts that God has gotten more for them than what they're experiencing. They know it. And that's what grieves them. They know that they are not experiencing their God the way he would want. And they just feel empty inside. And they pray and they pray and they pray, but to no avail. He's not answering. Nothing in their life is changing. But let me just say this to you. Somebody has said they're waiting for heaven, but heaven is waiting for them. God is waiting for them, waiting for all of us to come to the end of ourselves and to make a full and complete surrender of our lives to him, even as Hannah did. Let me ask you this, okay? What are you holding on to this morning? What are you holding on to? What hope or dream or goal are you clinging to that hasn't come to pass? Even though you've prayed and you've prayed and maybe wept before God, yet nothing has happened. And because of it, because you've spent so much time praying and feeling empty and kind of miserable inside and all, and God isn't answering, now you're starting to feel resentful. Of course, you know, oftentimes we take it out on the people that are nearest to us. And so once again, people in this position will begin to look at their husband or their wife or maybe even their kids resenting them because, after all, if I wasn't married and I had to take care of all these kids, I could be out there pursuing my dream. And sometimes they even blame God. They turn away from God because God hasn't come through for them the way they thought he was going to. God hasn't come through on the promises he's given, even though the promises they're clinging to were some preacher's promises that God promised them when they weren't really God. 
God promises to make you healthy. God promises to give you wealth. Those aren't promises of God. Those are promises of some preacher on TV. Manufactured from the word. Those are false promises. They're not going to come true. Don't blame God. Blame the TV preacher. But a lot of times people are feeling resentful at their families, at God, maybe for not coming through or giving them the thing that they know will bring them happiness, whatever that thing might be. And so they are just filled with resentment and despair. Look, it wasn't until Hannah surrendered what was most important to her, a desire for a son, that God finally answered that prayer and, listen, multiplied back to her her desire. What do you mean? Well, look at chapter 2, verse 21. Now, Hannah has given birth to Samuel and given Samuel to the Lord. In other words, given the baby, he was weaned, so he's three. Given this toddler to Eli to raise in the tabernacle, to live there in the presence of God. And after Hannah had the son, promising to give him to the Lord and came through on her promise, we read, the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. It wasn't until she gave to God what was most precious to her that God received the gift and multiplied it back to her. Look, why do you think God gave you the talents and abilities he's given to you? All of us have that, okay? Why do you think God gave you the talents and abilities he has given to you? For you to use them for yourself and for your glory? Or to give back to him so that he can use them and you for his glory. Why do you think God gave to you the financial resources that you have? I heard one guy say, God didn't give me anything. I work for that. Uh, Think again. Deuteronomy chapter 8, God says, who do you think gave you the power to get wealth? Okay? Daniel 5, every breath you take, every beat of your heart is a gift from me. So let's end this, I did it all myself. Okay? Anyways, that's a different sermon. Um, But what do you think God gave you? The finances or the financial resources that he has given you. For you to spend them on yourself? Or for you to give some of them back to him to be used by him for the building of his kingdom? Look, he doesn't need us. Okay? He doesn't need my money. God doesn't need my money, but I need to give him my money. For my sake. All right? Because it teaches me to be others-focused. And if my heart is right when I give resources back to God that he's given to me to be used to build his kingdom, then I receive rewards that will never fade away. Didn't Jesus say in Luke 6, verse 38, Given it shall be given back to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will men give into your bosom? But with the same measure that you measure out the things you give to God, we measure back to you again. As Paul put it, you sow sparingly, you what? You reap sparingly. Verse 11, one more time. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. Don't miss this, guys. So important. When Hannah surrendered her desire for a son to God, and began calling herself a maidservant, that was a pivotal moment in her life. A pivotal moment in her life. Don't miss that. She began to see herself as an instrument, a servant for God to use instead, listen, 
of someone that saw herself as the focus for God to bless. So many see prayers as a way for them to get their will done in heaven. I'm going to convince God to see it my way and give me what I want. If I could present a good enough case, you know, I can just sell myself and why it's a good thing I can get God to, you know. They see prayer as a way to get their will done in heaven when prayer is really a way to get God's will done on earth. Didn't Jesus say this? When he taught us to pray in the disciples' prayer in Matthew 6, he said, pray therefore in this manner, uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. That's what prayer is, all right? It's not trying to convince God to get me what I want. It's trying to stay in God's presence long enough where his heart becomes my heart. And I see my life not as an end in itself where God's going to bless me, but Lord, here I am. How can I be used to bless and glorify you? That's exactly the place Hannah came to. As she now saw her prayer as a vehicle, not to get her will done in heaven, but to get God's will done on earth by giving her a son that she would then give back to him, to be used for him, by him for his glory. She said, I'll paraphrase, Lord, if you give me a son, then I will give him back to you all the days of his life. Listen, and no razor shall come upon his head. What was she doing? She was making the vow of a Nazarite for her son. What was the vow of a Nazarite? Well, you can read about this at length in number six. But it was a specialized time where a person would set themselves apart for God. It involved abstaining from alcoholic beverages, wine, anything connected to the vine, grapes, uh, grape leaves, grape uh, seeds, anything okay, that was connected with making wine. It also involved letting a person's hair grow as a sign of their consecration. And, uh, of course, avoiding contact with dead bodies, which would defile. The usual length of the vow of a Nazarite was 30 days, although Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist were Nazarites for life. It just manifested the highest level of spiritual devotion. Would to God that every Christian parent saw their children in this way, and they said to God, Lord, this child is not really mine. You have loaned this child to me. And I want to build into this child a heart of a Nazarite, somebody who was totally consecrated to you, somebody who will live their life not just for 30 days in close communion, but the rest of their life, which means right now I've got to work hard to build into this child a love for you, uh, a knowledge of your word, and so on and so forth. Now, Hannah was only going to have Samuel for three years until he was weaned. Of course, as parents, we have our children until they're grown. What a difference this young generation could have made in this country, and hopefully will still make in some way, if Christian parents had seen their responsibility to raise up their children in the ways of God, taking it seriously, as many have not, some have. All right, so Hannah prays out of a broken It's all under Hannah's supplication, okay? Verses 8 to 18. Hannah prays out of a broken heart. Hannah surrenders the desire of her heart to God. Number three, Hannah's devotion is misunderstood. And this comes right out of the passage, and I feel we need to talk about it for a minute. Hannah's devotion is misunderstood. Verse 12, and it happened as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. 
And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. I'm just brokenhearted. I'm not drunk. <laughs> I'm just pouring my heart out to the Lord. Now, some find fault with Eli for being of the mindset that assumed this woman who was in deep devotion to God was actually drunk. But in all fairness to Eli, it does, I think, indicate the condition of the people that he came across quite a bit. It seems that it was quite common for people to enter into these fellowship feasts or meals with the Lord at the tabernacle, where they then drank, got intoxicated, and then came into God's presence to pray drunk. So you have to understand something. One of the offerings that God specified in Leviticus 5 that they were to bring to him was a peace offering. And the peace offering was an animal they would bring and sacrifice to the Lord there. Some of the animal was taken and burned on the altar completely for the Lord. That was his part. The rest was given back to the person, and they would then go off to the side, and they would eat the animal, which had been roasted, in the presence of God. It was like you were eating with the Lord. He was getting part, you were getting part. In that culture, to eat with somebody, you were becoming one with them, they believed. It was their way of having fellowship or oneness with the Lord. God ate off of the animal. Uh, I'm eating off the animal. And that was a good thing. I mean, it was God ordained it. However, the spiritual condition of the people at this time was very low. And so they turned it into a party in a sense. It's an interesting how that, you know, people come to worship God. And, you know, downstairs they have bingo night and they're drinking wine and whatever else. And, yeah, okay, that's, again, another message. Um, but as they're eating this thing before the Lord, where they should be enjoying his fellowship, thinking about him, they're getting drunk. And so apparently this was not an uncommon thing for people to come into God's presence there in the tabernacle and, you know, slurring their words or, you know, can't talk at all because they're wiped out. They're, they're intoxicated. So Eli, being the high priest, said, look, he was trying to keep this from going on and, and rebuked Hannah, not knowing that she was not drunk with wine, she was drunk with the Holy Spirit in a sense. Years later, that would be what Paul says. Don't be drunk with the wine we're in his excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're going to be intoxicated, if you're going to be under the influence, be under the influence of the Holy Spirit who's controlling your life, not alcohol, okay? Anyway, so Eli mistook Hannah's devotion for drunkenness. And I bring this out because when a person seeks to really devote themselves to God, they are often misunderstood and criticized. In fact, it seems the deeper the devotion to God, the more misunderstood and criticized it is by those who know the Lord. That, that's the sad part about it. Uh, Eli was the high priest. He was the highest spiritual guy in the whole land. But I have seen oftentimes when a person wants to go deeper, we talk about going deeper with the Lord this year. I guarantee you, if you want to really be committed to the Lord this year, and, and I don't know what form that's going to take in your life, but I'm saying if you really want to, go, want to go deeper with the Lord this year, you start giving up stuff, you stop, you know, and really focusing on God, guess what? The people who know the Lord often are going to think that you're becoming a fanatic. Isn't that sad? Why do they think that? Because their lives are not being lived anywhere near that level of devotion. And because if I say that's a good thing, that means I'm living a carnal life. If I, if I look at you and I see where you're going with the Lord, you're getting deeper with him, you know, your devotion is getting deeper and deeper. 
I look at myself and I feel like a carnal dirtbag. I don't want to feel that way. So what do I do? I make myself the norm and you a fanatic. You don't have to be a fanatic. You can love the Lord. Look at me. I love the Lord. So what if I'm out with the guys drinking a couple times a week or whatever, all right? Look, I've told you this story before. Let me just say it again real quick. And we're talking about those who want to go deeper, want to live a life of total devotion to God are often misunderstood and criticized, often by the people of God. You've heard the story of Jim Elliott. Uh, Jim was a missionary to the Yaka Indians before he was martyred back in the 50s. But at one point, Jim was studying to be a doctor, a medical doctor. But then God got a hold of his heart and began to lead him down the path of being a missionary. Well, he was in med school, and when he told his family he was going to be dropping out of med school to become a full-time missionary, here's what they said. They said, Jim, don't be a fool. I mean, you're going to give up a life of security and prestige and wealth as a doctor to be a missionary? You know how missionaries, they have no money, no security. It's dangerous. Don't be a fool, Jim. You can love God and, 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 and not go on the mission field. And Jim gave that classic response. He said, that man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. But see, his devotion to God was being criticized, was misunderstood. It reminds me of Mary of Bethany. We talked about her last week, how she took the bottle of very costly spoil of spikenard, which was worth about a year's wage and probably was her dowry, and she wanted to use it to anoint Jesus for burial, but of course these bottles were sealed. You didn't unscrew the cap or pull the cork out, dab a little bit on somebody and put it away. You had to break it to open it, and once you broke it, you had to use all of it. So she broke and poured it all out on Jesus. And you know what the disciples said, Judas being the ringleader? Why this waste? This could have been sold and the money given to the poor. And all the disciples jumped in and said, yeah, yeah, why this waste? Let me tell you something. Nothing we ever give to God or do for God is ever wasted if it's given out of a right heart. And the costlier the offering, the more God is honored and blessed. Why this waste? Are you kidding me? The only waste is a life that never wants to live in devotion to God. That's a waste. It's never a waste to take my life and say, Lord, here I am. Use me. I'm tired of playing games. I'm tired of being a carnal Christian. I'm tired of going halfway and keeping my one foot in the kingdom, one foot in the world. I'm tired of it, Lord. Like Joshua, I'm done. I want to choose today to serve you, me and my family, all the way. Yeah, you're going to be criticized. As we saw when we studied that passage about Mary of Bethany, worship is costly. And because of it, worship is often criticized, as she experienced. So we've seen Hannah praise out of a broken heart. Number two, Hannah surrenders the desire of her heart to God. Number three, Hannah's devotion is misunderstood. And fourth and finally this morning, Hannah's burden was lifted. Verse 17, Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition, which you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Now, when I studied this, I came to realize that the Jewish people, these are their scriptures, the Jewish people believed that Eli didn't just pronounce a word of hope on Hannah. Hey, hope that works out for you. Okay, Hope God gives you a son. 
they believe he actually was prophesying over her. And you know what? It seems that Hannah took it that way because her burden now seems to have lifted in the light of what she now understood to be a word from the Lord that she would have a son. And this brought her hope. She was in despair because her situation looked hopeless. And now a word from God, a promise that she would have a son. Her burden is lifted. Why? Because she now had hope. Look, hope is not only essential for happiness, it is essential for life itself. There are certain drives that God has built into the human body to ensure its health and survival. We've talked about these. The strongest of these is the air drive, followed by the water drive, followed then by the sleep drive, the food drive, etc. Now, just as God has given us physical drives that keep our physical bodies healthy, He has also given us emotional drives, which need to be satisfied if we're going to remain emotionally healthy. And I believe the strongest of these is hope, followed by the need for love, for peace, for joy. All of those come from God, by the way. They're all attributes of God. But I believe the strongest of these is hope. Hope is one of those things that makes life possible. We simply can't live without hope. Listen to what Solomon said in Proverbs 13. He said, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. Or in other words, when we are deprived of hope, we become emotionally unhealthy in our hearts. David made reference to this in Psalm 27 where he said, I would have lost heart. In other words, uh, if I didn't have hope, I would have lost heart unless I had believed. Hold on to that. That I would see the goodness of the Lord. Look, not in heaven, but in the land of the living right here on earth. That's what keeps us going. Okay? We think that pleasure, we don't, but a lot of people do in the world. Pleasure is how people get from day to day. It isn't pleasure. It's hope. Many a rich person, many a millionaire has committed suicide, not because they didn't have pleasure, but they didn't have hope. As a Christian, our hope is connected to the promises God has given to us in his word. That's where they're a sure thing. Remember what Paul said in Hebrews 11, verse 1? Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Why? Because all hope is connected to a promise of God. That's the hope. And that's why we study the word. That's why we come to church, not only to praise our God, but to study his word in part because we want to know what God has promised us because those are the things that we cling to. Those are the things that we hope in. Those are the things that gets us from day to day. All right? It's God's word. It's his promises. That even though things look pretty black all around me at this moment, I've got God's promise. He's with me. He's going to take care of it. All right? He's going to provide my needs. And so on. Look, one pastor put it this way. He said, and I quote, when Hannah was told her prayer was answered, although she had no tangible evidence of this, she chose to believe. It was her choice, just like it is with us. You can read God's word, you can study his promises, but you have to choose whether or not you're going to believe it for your own life. She heard that her prayer was answered, although she had no tangible evidence of this, she chose to believe. Are you discouraged or depressed? The cure lies not in seeing your situation change, but in hearing the word and choosing to believe it. What has God whispered in your ear? Hang on to it. Believe it. Don't despair. 
Live a life rejoicing, for in so doing you will prevent Satan from aborting that which God wants to conceive in you and birth through you, end quote. You're saying to yourself right now, yeah, well, that's all well and fine. I've been hoping for years, okay, that my husband would get saved or that my child would come back to God or something to that effect. That's getting hard to hope. I'm losing hope. In fact, in many ways, I've lost hope. Praying so long for this or that, whatever, fill in the blank. Nothing has happened. Well, look, Hannah seemed trapped in her circumstances, which also seemed to show no signs of change. Verse 7, verse 7, so it was what? Year by year. So it was year by year that she wept and she prayed and nothing changed. Nothing changed. When Hannah came to Shiloh this year, she wept and she poured her heart out to God. But I think there was a big part of Hannah that felt, why is this year going to be any different than any other year? You ever been there? However, the story of Hannah tells us that everything in our life can change in a single day. In a single day. In one day, she went from hopeless despair to joyful hope. Why? Because God gave her a promise. That's why it's so important to know the promises of God and to cling to them. Oh, yes, but look at the circumstance. Forget the circumstance. Oh, but I've been praying for years and nothing has happened. That's okay. Because for everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. We can pray for years for some things. It just says that God needs that time to work to save this person. Or to, to lay the groundwork for a new work in our lives or whatever it might be. This is not something unique to Hannah's life. Think of Joseph. There's a godly young guy. Brothers hated him, sold him into slavery. Ten years he worked for Potiphar. Worked hard, was a responsible young guy. Then one day, Potiphar's wife accused him of trying to rape her. That was a lie. They took him and threw him into the dungeon where he was for three years. I'm sure all that 13 years he was praying and fasting and, and weeping before God to change his circumstance. Nothing happened. And so one day, Daniel went from prisoner in Egypt to prime minister of Egypt. One day. Somebody has said when God is laying the, the groundwork for a great work, it takes time. When the groundwork is finally finished and God begins to move, hang on to your seats, things go fast. I'm telling you, things can change in a day. I think of the woman with the well in John 4. She was a gal who was empty inside for different reasons than Hannah, of course. She thought that a man was going to satisfy the emptiness in her heart. So she was married and divorced five times and now was living with a guy had gone out to this well every day, right? She goes out one day, and it was noon. You didn't draw water from a well at noon in that culture. That was the hardest part, hottest part of the day. The women got the water early in the morning. Well, the sun was just first coming up. Well, it was cool. Or late in the evening when the sun was just setting. Again, it was cool. For a woman to come to a well at 12 noon to draw water meant she was an outcast. Well, because every woman in town was afraid that she's going to take their husband. Okay, nobody wanted to deal with this, this gal. So she was ostracized. Came to this well, and one day, she had gone to this well thousands of times over the years. 
One day she goes to the well and finds a man sitting there who engages her in conversation. She knows he's a rabbi because he's wearing the robe of a rabbi. It was Jesus, of course, who began to probe her. He knew what she was doing, how she was living. He revealed that to her. When he did, she realized she was in the presence of a prophet. First question she asked the Lord, you can study it on your own. Where can I find God? Jesus basically said he's talking to you. You've come to this well to get water because you want to satisfy your physical thirst. But I know there's a thirst in your soul that you're trying to satisfy with relationships. Well, it will be satisfied with a relationship with me. And he witnessed to her and she received him. She put her water pot down because now she had everything she needed. She went into the city, began to witness that she had found the Messiah. Her life changed in a matter of a few moments. She was not the same person. Look, let me just end by saying this. People, many people, can look back to what started as an ordinary day. Okay? Ordinary day. With no promise of relief or any kind of change coming. They started this day as just an ordinary day. But it wound up being the day, quote unquote. The day. A day that they look back on now and know that was the day my life changed. That was the day that all the prayers came to fruition. That was the day when the God of heaven moved in my life had never been the same since. This was the kind of day Hannah had <laughs> after many years of sorrow and sadness. And guys, this could be the day that's coming in your life very soon. Don't lose heart. Don't give up hope. Sometimes God takes his time in laying the groundwork for a great work. And I know sometimes it seems like things are never going to change. But these things were written Paul said, for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have what? Hope. Hope. As we look at how God dealt with Hannah, in all the years of barrenness, all the years of prayer, where it seemed like her life was never going to change, in one day God did something that she was never the same. And I pray that you will hang on to the promises God has given to you. Recognize that, okay, God may have not answered yet. That doesn't mean he's not going to answer, and it may, he may answer today. So give, me, give us grace, Lord, that we keep our eyes on you and off our circumstances. Getting your eyes on your circumstances, guys, will drag you down. Peter found that out in the Sea of Galilee. <laughs> Keeping your eyes on the Lord, that'll lift you up. That'll lift you up. And that's what we need. We need to have hope as we keep our eyes on him. Father... We thank you so much, Lord, for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Lord, as we're studying the life of Hannah right now and the lessons that you're teaching us, Lord. Father, these are great beginning-of-the-year lessons that will hopefully lay the groundwork for a work in our lives this year that will be unlike anything you've ever done in our lives up to this point. We thank you, Lord. Father, we pray that this year would be a year of total surrender, that, Lord, we would stop looking at you as someone to bless us and start looking at ourselves as someone who wants to devote themselves to you to bless you and to bring glory to your name. Lord, if we get out of the way, <laughs> stop making everything about us, you'll begin to bless, you'll begin to work, you'll begin to multiply back to us, Lord, all the, th the desires of our hearts, which is just to be fulfilled, to feel like we have purpose, that we're making a difference. Lord, you'll do all of those things if we just get out of the way and stop making ourselves the focus. Give us grace, Lord. This year would be a year of surrender, brokenness, a year that we cling to your promises, that our soul was lifted because we trust you.
We just thank you, Lord. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.